Dare to Explore is presented by the Space Camp Explorers Club, a new way to support the U.S. Space and Rocket Center and Space Camp. Members of the Space Camp Explorers Club gain exclusive access to content, behind-the-scenes stories, and members-only swag. To learn more, visit spacecampexplorersclub.org. When I grew up in Colwood, uh, West Virginia, I, uh, of course, coal mines are a good place to find fossils. Right. And all the tailings from the coal uh, were dumped uh, back behind the mine or actually in a place where we eventually ended up launching our rockets, a big coal dump, and we found fossils there all the time. Homer Hickam is a former NASA aerospace engineer, Vietnam War veteran, and author of 19 books. The 1999 film October Sky, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, was based on his book Rocket Boys, a memoir about his childhood in Colwood, West Virginia. I'm Ryan Faricelli. Join me as I learn what makes this extraordinary individual dare to explore. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for. up in Colwood, West Virginia, you and, and a group of your friends, I mean, did you call yourself the Rocket Boys, or was that something that has, has come about later? Uh, we were uh, derisively called the Rocket Boys, uh, <laughs> who, uh, who were blowing everything up and stinking up the whole town, and so uh, it, it, uh, they didn't mean it as a compliment, but later, <laughs> later with the book, I decided to make it into one. Sure, you have to own it. Uh, we never called ourselves the Rocket Boys. We were called the Big Creek Missile Agency. Big Creek was the... <laughs> name of our high school. So when we formed the, our, our group right after uh, Sputnik, the first uh, artificial satellite, we right. saw that fly over Colwood, we decided to name it uh, Big Creek Missile Agency after the Army Ballistic Missile Agency right here in Huntsville. And because there wasn't any NASA then, right. um, that, that came about a year later. Took us a while to figure out how to build rockets. There, there weren't any too many people around Colwood that uh, built rockets. There weren't any. <laughs> there were hardly any anywhere, as a matter of fact. Uh, so it was a lot of trial and error. And but we were just absolutely dedicated to learning how to build these things. What was what was the goal of your group? Like, were you all at the time dreaming of of actually working on real rockets? Was that well? You know, it's pretty complicated looking back on it. That's why I wrote the whole book, yeah. the Rocket Boys, and then kind of took a step step by step, but the original impetus was uh, with the launching of uh, Sputnik, it scared the United States a lot, because you got to remember, that was right in the midst of the Cold War. Uh, uh, We were just armed to the teeth on both sides, the Russians and the United States, and it was kind of common uh, knowledge and opinion that eventually we were going to have a a nuclear exchange. That's why all these bomb shelters and everything else were built. Duck and cover. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we did a lot of that um, in school. And so that was was something to think about. So when the Russians launched Sputnik, um, for a lot of the country, it was a scary, scary time because that meant that they were capable of of uh, having great big rockets that could launch heavy payloads, not only over the United States, but maybe on the United States. But for... For us kids, 
There were two golden ages going on for kids back then. The first one was it was the golden age of rock and roll. <laughs> uh, nothing ever happened since the 1950s, in my opinion, improved rock and roll. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was also the golden age of science fiction. And we were all big readers, so we read a lot of Heinlein and Isaac Asimov and... Uh, um, uh, Arthur C. Clarke and all these uh, great sci-fi writers. So we were primed for this. So when Sputnik happened, we weren't scared. We were intrigued by the right. whole thing. And we also heard about this fellow down in Huntsville, Alabama. I thought it was at Cape Canaveral, but it turned <laughs> out he was in Huntsville, called Dr. Werner von Braun. And he was, he became a hero to a lot of kids because he said, uh, I can launch a satellite and, you know, I can do it in 30 days. Just give me the go. And so a lot of us wanted to help him and, and, uh, <laughs> and, and get involved with this whole thing. So that's, that's how we decided that we wanted to start rockets without any knowledge whatsoever on how to do it. So we started from scratch. Homer attended Virginia Tech, where he graduated with an industrial engineering degree. During his junior year, he designed Skipper, a Civil War replica cannon used to celebrate the school's football team. The team's rivals, the Virginia Military Institute, had their own cannon and often would taunt Virginia Tech fans asking, where's your cannon? That just irritated us so much that a few <laughs> of us got together and against the wishes of, of the administration at Virginia Tech, we decided to build our own cannon. And we did, ultimately, a big brass cannon. Um, Where would you get that much brass from? I got part of it from my dad's coal mine. He had a lot of, <laughs> he had a lot of scrap brass. We also collected all our brass uh, old belt buckles and, and such. Didn't amount to much, but, you know. Right. We, we kept the skipper secret, and uh, on the day that we introduced it, uh, VMI dragged their little pop gun out and fired it <laughs> off and said, where's your cannon? Where's your cannon? We dragged out that great big skipper and set it off. And it sent a shockwave across. The, we, did, we had tested it on the golf course at Virginia Tech, <laughs> right. but never in an enclosed stadium like that. Oh. And I put an extra double charge in, <laughs> and um, it blew a shockwave across that football field and up through the VMI cadets and cracked the glass on the other side, uh, of, uh, <laughs> where in the press box on the other side. Wow. And we chanted, here's our cannon. <laughs> and so that, we never expected to go much beyond that. We didn't know, you know, because the administration did not know we were doing this. It was kind of against right. it. Um, but now it's become this huge tradition at Virginia Tech. They've retired that cannon, and they've got a second one now. Yeah, yeah I, I, mean, I was in the class of 64. I actually graduated in 65, like most engineering students. It was really a five-year program. They claimed it was four, but generally it was five. <laughs> After that, you were in the Army. Right. Um, I went, of course, it was a military college, and I was in ROTC, uh, but I was in Air Force ROTC, but my eyes weren't good enough for a commission at the end, so I was eligible for the draft, and I was drafted. But before they got me, uh, and this was as Vietnam was starting to heat up, uh, right. I volunteered for a, uh, an OCS program, so I ended up going through... Um, uh, Army Engineer OCS at Fort Belvoir, uh, was assigned um, first to Dugway Proving Ground out in the, in the Great Salt Lake Desert. I still can't talk very much about what we did out there, uh, but then I decided that, um, well, they said I could stay out there, but I decided I, I wanted to go to Vietnam because I was well-trained for it. I'd had all those years at Virginia Tech, and um, 
I just felt like if, uh, if I didn't go, somebody else was going, so I volunteered for Vietnam. It took me about 24 hours to figure out that was really not a good idea after I was there. <laughs> but I'm kind of glad now, looking back on it, that I did. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, you were in the Army for six years. Right. Uh, and then we're with the U.S. Army Aviation and Missile Command. Yeah, I was um, called a DAC, you know, Department Army Civilian. And I worked on a number of missile programs. Um, I also started programming an IBM 1620 computer. I knew Fortran from Virginia Tech in the IE department. And so that turned me into a fairly valuable commodity. I was an engineer that knew how to program a computer. Right. And then that's why NASA ended up hiring me in 1981 to come back here to Marshall Space Flight Center was not because of what I knew about rockets, but what I knew about computers. Really? Yeah. So um, that was, I ended up in the Space Lab Program Office. That was a laboratory that went into the shuttle cargo bay. Right. I did that for a couple of years and um, automated their systems and um, learned all about the space lab and started working with the astronauts in the neutral buoyancy simulator. I was a scuba instructor. After Challenger and space lab program office was essentially shut down for a few years after that, right. um, it, I decided that uh, I didn't want to just cool my heels for a few years and just do paperwork. Uh, I moved on down to what was called the manned systems branch of the mission operations lab where we trained the astronauts to work inside the space lab and work with the principal investigators to develop all their experiments. Most of my career, the rest of my career, was training uh, astronauts. Uh, I spent um, uh, about a year in Japan training the first Japanese astronauts, which was just a wonderful experience. What was it like to work with the very first Japanese astronauts? Because they not only did they not have experience with uh, what you were training them for, but they didn't really have any experience with, with going to space either. Yeah, well, uh, in the first place, they were really great, and, and they were kind of refreshing, uh, where the Japanese astronauts kind of approached it from a more philosophical point of view about about what is the importance of going into space and why, Homer son, are, are, you, are you here? Why are you, what interests you so much about space? And for most of us at NASA, you know, I, uh, I had almost forgotten philosophically why I wanted to do this. It was my job, you know, and it was all nuts right. and bolts and all that kind of stuff. And they, the Japanese got me to reflecting on what was the, why were we doing this? And, and so it was wonderful working with them and, and talking with them on, on how they saw it and um, uh, why it was important to the world that we, we go out there and explore and bring back um, resources from space. And uh, uh, that it was, that once you have a technology that it's almost, uh, the universe almost demands that, that you use it, but you use it in a, in a way that's, that's good for people and so on. So, uh, so yeah, I was uh, very comfortable with the, with the Japanese. Train like an astronaut and get lost in space at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. Exclusive family weekend programs are available to try your hand at piloting the shuttle and is based on both the past and future of space exploration. Pilot the space shuttle and attempt to land safely with the museum shuttle experience. Your team of up to four participants must work together to land the shuttle and bring the crew safely home. Museum admission is required. Find out available times, prices, and more at rocketcenter.com and get ready 
to blast off. Homer trained astronauts on science payloads and extravehicular activities. He was also the payload manager for the International Space Station. He worked on the neutral buoyancy simulator and trained individuals for working on Space Lab and the launch and repair of the Hubble Space Telescope. In terms of working in the suits, we found out that by using the underwater environment, we could simulate that very, very closely. And that just means that um, you actually go into the real suit, you go underwater, and you add weights to the suit in such a way that um, you know, you're know you basically neutrally buoyant and, or just like in space. Right. And so um, you can, with uh, high-fidelity mock-ups underwater, you can figure out where you need the handrails and how to move around and uh, where the foot restraints need to go in order to work, and you can develop the underwater tools to to approximate what the what the space tools are, you know, and uh, what the reach is going to need to be. We did all that for the Hubble Space Telescope deployment and repair missions. We you, did all that training here. In you did two of the repair missions. Two of them, yeah. Uh, the only one that really mattered was the first one because right. we weren't sure we could really do it. <laughs> really? Um, yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, Story Musgrave was the astronaut that led that effort, and I still remember he came up and basically – he worked in our tank a lot. He looked it over and said it wasn't adequate because he wanted to run end-to-end runs. That meant six hours uh, runs, right. which meant he, if, what we did was we pumped air down to the, to the astronauts in their suits. That's 80% nitrogen. It's normal air. Uh, under pressure, then you can only stay so long or else when you come up, you get the bends. Right. Decompression sickness. That meant we had, if Story wanted to have his end-to-end runs, and we were willing to do that for him, we had to design a system that basically sent down a very high oxygen content, which was not that hard except for one thing. That meant the astronauts had a very good chance of catching on fire. So uh, (laughs) oxygen under pressure (laughs) uh, is, is not necessarily a good thing. So we had to have a lot of training on what to do if the astronaut actually catch it. It was a low probability, but it was still there. What right. happens if, if there's a spark inside this suit? <laughs> what do you do? Basically, we divers were taught we had to sacrifice ourselves. We had to get that, the crewman to the surface real quick, get that suit off of him, whether he was burning or not. And right. you're just going to have to burn with him is what, what it kind of boiled down to. <laughs> so we were very, obviously very dedicated yeah. <laughs> to, to fixing uh, the Hubble, and so were they. So were right. the astronauts. Uh, and uh, it was great working with Story and Kathy Thornton and Jeff Hoffman and, and those folks uh, uh, on that first Hubble repair mission. I, I like to say that was NASA's finest hour since Apollo, and I still think it think it was because um, uh, we ended up fixing stuff that wasn't designed to be fixed. They they said you know the Hubble was designed to be fixed. Well, not the part that we des- we went in and actually fixed. Right. It well, wasn't because that was the the actual mirror. The right? actual mirror. Yeah, I had put in something. It was called the CoStar. I forget what that acronym stands for, yeah. but it basically was a device that um, you, we didn't change the mirror out, but it was a device that used reflectors that you could move around to correct for for that lens. Um, which was, I mean, the error was only about half the width of a human hair. It was amazing how small it was, but it was enough to cause us what they call a spherical aberration, right? Which made really far distant objects a little bit fuzzy. Uh, 
and that's that's really why we had telescope, you know? right? <laughs> <laughs> you worked on uh, the Solar Max repair. Yeah, Solar Max was um, I think that was probably around '84 or so. It was um, the year that uh, the sun was real, real active, so they had a satellite to go up there, and we were basically involved with um, with training the astronauts to how to deploy it. Yeah, there was a lot of we did a lot of fun things in in the tank. We did um, we learned how to to patch the exterior of future space stations and so on, um, and uh, what would stick and what wouldn't, and how to get get at things, right? And, and this and that. So um, yeah, there were a lot of very interesting experiments in there. And eventually, you were a payload training manager for the International Space Station. That's true. Uh, after Space Lab J, it was like, where am I going to go from here? And, <laughs> you know, um, that was really a high point in my career as far as I was concerned. But Ken Smith, who was my direct uh, supervisor, asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, well, whatever you want me to do, Ken. And he said, well, I want you to work on the International Space Station. That there are a lot of problems with working with the Russians. Al, Al Gore has declared that we're going to work with the Russians. And I thought, whoa, our Cold War, Cold War enemies? We're going to work with them, <laughs> right? And uh, so we all had to get our our heads screwed on in a different direction. It turned out the Russians were tough to negotiate with, but wonderful to work with. A subtle but important difference. And so I went over to Moscow a lot and sat across the table from, interestingly, the same guys who had launched Sputnik. They were still there. All, <laughs> all of our guys, you know, the Von Brown team and uh, the uh, Mercury 7 and the Apollo folks, they were all gone from the right. space agency by then. But the Russians were still there, the same bunch. Yeah. When I was there, I thought it was kind of sad, though, really. They, um, the, I was negotiating with them, I want to say, like the 95, 96 time frame. Uh, and I, my part in negotiating with them was how are we going to train their cosmonauts? How are they going to train our astronauts? How are we going to get involved here in Huntsville? Because we were training uh, uh, payload specialists. These were civilian, uh, non-astronaut scientists who were flying into space and also the astronauts on the scientific experiments that were in space lab. And we had a payload crew training complex here, and so we had we had managed to carve out a piece of the um, astronaut training pie. So, so now, uh, with my experience with the Japanese, um, we almost wore our American astronauts out, <laughs> flying them back and forth to Japan and to all the other PI sites. So I had that in the back of my mind when I started. I started negotiating with the Russians. The right. Russians basically wanted the Americans to come over there and stay there. And the Americans down in Houston wanted um, the cosmonauts to come to Houston and stay there. <laughs> Nobody wanted them to come to Huntsville. <laughs> so, uh, but we had that part of the pie for training on science. Right. So ultimately, we here in Huntsville kept the uh, responsibility to train the astronauts and cosmonauts on science, but all of the training would be done in either Houston or in Star City in Russia. We saw families breaking up because right. of all the travel and everything that we were doing for the astronauts too. It just wasn't good. Yeah. And you could get away with that in the early years uh, with those jet jockeys who mostly liked to be away from the family anyway. <laughs> right. But right. now we were training, you know, uh, Men and women. Nuclear families. Yeah, I mean, really. Men yeah. and women with families and uh, just, you know, normal. Right. Much, much, much normal. Very intelligent, but still 
normal. When you retired in 1998, what was that like to, to sort of set aside all of this? Well, um, by then I had a publishing contract for Rocket Boys, the memoir, and the movie was being made. Right. I had uh, been a freelance writer during all those years. I'd written one other book called Torpedo Junction. Right. It was um, very well received back in uh, 1989 when it came out. Uh, so it just seemed, I was 55 years old. I had 30 years of federal service. Uh, I had uh, worked what I considered the most likely the big missions I was going to be able to work on, Space Lab J, uh, Hubble Space Telescope, uh, International Space Station. I was just at the point where it's probably best for me to get out of the way. <laughs> it, was, it was all <laughs> downhill. So I <laughs> yeah, I kind of thought it was. I, I did. And I thought, you know, I wanted to build my career as a writer. Right. And um, I just felt like that um, I could still kind of keep my hand in things uh, with NASA if they needed anything. You know, I was right here in Huntsville. Yeah. And um, it's kind of worked out that way. Ultimately, I ended up on the board here at the Space and Rocket Center. Right. And... Um, and I'm also, I occasionally do a little consulting out there on this and that. So, yeah. Well, and you're currently uh, on the National Space Council. That's true. Uh, <laughs> as long as there is one, um, <laughs> I am. Uh, it's called the User Advisory Group, the UAG, which is a, uh, is a branch of the National Space Council. We advise them. We have different committees within there. Uh, and Vice President Pence was the one that really revitalized the National Space Council. Because it was, we used to have it. And it went away for, I don't know, 20 years. Yeah. And uh, Mike Pence was um, was very interested in space. Right. And he told me that uh, he had read Rocket Boys and Back to the Moon, which was the book after Rocket Boys. And it so impressed him that he thought that we should go back to the moon. I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> uh, so uh, he came here in 2019, or yeah, 2019, and uh, made the speech that established uh, what ultimately became the Artemis program. So, so we're pretty proud of that. Yeah. But, uh, you started writing uh, in 1969, and it was scuba articles after you'd uh, come back from Vietnam. That's correct? true. Yeah. Uh, once I once I became a scuba instructor, I started diving a lot of wrecks, um, and uh, I looked. I read a lot of, of magazines, skin diver, sport diver, all of those that were uh, available at that time, and I thought I can do better than this. And I was always <laughs> interested in writing anyway. So um, yeah, so I started writing about diving on shipwrecks. What ultimately led to the book Torpedo Junction was uh, I was uh, instructing here in Huntsville and heard uh, from a fellow instructor that they'd found a, a wreck off of North Carolina they thought might be a German submarine. And it's like, well, what's a German submarine doing? They had no idea. Right. I wangled a way to get up there and, <laughs> and convinced them to take me out to it. And after a couple of, they didn't want to take outsiders to it. After a couple of tries, I finally did find somebody who knew where it was, and we dived yeah. on it. And I recognized it instantly, because by then I'd started studying German U-boats to sure. see what they looked like. I recognized it as a German U-boat. It definitely was. And like, what is it doing here? I went up to the conning tower, and uh, most of his shroud was gone, and saw a big hole where the 88-millimeter gun was supposed to be. 
uh, that was gone, and then looked into the conning tower and saw what I thought was a bowl. And like most wreck divers, I'd like to collect artifacts. I reached down there to, to grab hold of this bowl, and it turned out to be a human skull. Oh, goodness. So uh, <laughs> this was this like, okay, something happened here. Right. <laughs> so uh, that was the U-352. Ultimately... Uh, I tracked down survivors on both sides, the Coast Guard cutter Icarus that sank it and uh, the, the captain of the U-352 wow. first, and to find out what really happened. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, these make for great stories, and yeah. that's why ultimately I, I did all that research to write Torpedo Junction, which was about that whole battle yeah. off North Carolina during World War II. So. And the, of course, the big book was Rocket Boys yeah. about your experience growing up in Colwood yeah. and building those rockets, and yeah. that became October Sky, which is the movie that that yeah. most folks know. Not a book that I meant to write. I uh, I was writing a little bit for Smithsonian Air and Space Magazine, and one night in uh, 1994, um, the editor Pat Trenner called me and said she needed 2,000 words for a filler in her in her magazine for. Uh, February for the February issue and could I, did I have anything because I'd written a number of things for yeah. her I didn't but I I looked across and I was using as a paperweight an old rocket nozzle that we'd build back in Colwood <laughs> and I said Pat I could write you 2,000 words on when I was a kid in West Virginia we built rockets and Pat Trenner was completely, totally, utterly underwhelmed at this idea. <laughs> but I did it and she loved it and they published it and all of a sudden I started hearing from uh, movie producers and uh, right. New York. It is. I mean, it is a, a wonderful, amazing story. Yeah, but uh, but I need somebody else to kind of point that out to me because I just you know if nothing had come out of that magazine article, I would not have written the book. Uh, but when they started asking, you know, New York publishers and agents were asking, "Are you writing a book about this?" I said, "Well, I am now." <laughs> so in the process, I got a million dollars worth of psychotherapy I didn't even know I needed. You know, so. <laughs> Homer's entire career was filled with fascinating and amazing stories. After spending most of his life looking up, exploring the future in space, when he retired, he began looking down, exploring the past with dinosaurs. Started looking for dinosaurs in um, 2001. I went out first time with Dr. Horner, right? Because Joe Johnston, the director of October Skies, the third making, Jurassic Park film, was making yeah. Jurassic Park three, and so that's how I got to know Dr. Horner. And it turned out I was pretty good at, at finding bones because <laughs> I would go. I'm ignorant. You know, ignorance is bliss. Sometimes I would sure. go to places where the professionals wouldn't go because they'd say there's no dinosaurs there, and I'd go find dinosaurs. And uh, so, so I've been been going ever since every year. That's but eventually, you found—I mean, you found some T-Rex skeletons. Is it five of the? Yeah, the five out of the, well, I think they're probably up to forty-two or forty-three by now. Every year, somebody <laughs> finds a few, a few more. Dare to Explore Milestones to Mars, the all-new exhibit sponsored by Lockheed Martin at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. Dare to Explore Milestones to Mars takes visitors on a six-decade journey of space exploration and looks at the innovation that has prepared humans to land on the moon and go beyond. Especially designed for young visitors with school groups and families, this exhibit includes interactive displays and activities that demonstrate how we will live and work in space. This experience is included with your U.S. Space and Rocket Center general admissions. Visit rocketcenter.com for tickets today.
you ever did you ever wish that that you were the one who could go up? Yeah, I would go in a heartbeat. And I don't understand why Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos don't they don't offer me a seat. <laughs> or Richard Branson, he you know, he he's my neighbor. And somebody said, Well, we'll fly your ashes, Homer, and I said, Screw that. I, my ashes are gonna go out in the backyard with my cats. But uh, <laughs> so, so I'm always hopeful that uh, right. somebody will wise up and, and send me into space. My wife can't wait. It's like, yeah, go, go. Why didn't you go yesterday? I was thirty eight when I started working for NASA, so it's kinda kinda at the wrong time and wrong place to even think about being uh, an astronaut at yeah. that point. Uh, but yeah, you can't help but uh, but feel like that you could do it. And you know, if you just got the chance. Yeah, whatever you do, uh, young people, is when you wake up in the morning, you should think, oh boy, I get to go do that. You know. So uh, try to make whatever your professional life is uh, something that you really, really love, that you really enjoy doing. a spaceship that I'm waiting for I'm flying up to the stars I'm gonna dare to explore this time and I'm 